and truly God is the strength of our soul. Like I mentioned, we're going to be continuing on in the gospel of John and not jumping ahead to John 12 where we have the triumphal entry. We are, of course, going to do something different on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. Uh, And then a couple of things after that as well before we jump back into John uh, later in the month of April. But today we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to that. We're going to read that here in a moment. Maybe you've been in a place before in your life uh, where you felt like you were surrounded by people who knew lots of stuff and you really didn't know anything. Maybe it was a class you signed up for and you got there and you realized that everybody else in this class seems to understand what the person up front is saying and I really understand nothing. Maybe it's you've been in a church before, and maybe it's a church that's different from your own church tradition, and you've been there, and everybody's kneeling and standing and saying stuff and singing stuff. You're like, well, I'm not sure how they know how to do all this, but I don't feel like I know much at all of what's going on here. Or maybe uh, if you're like me, it's when guys are together and they're talking about guy stuff, and it might be like car parts and all sorts of other stuff. I might nod like I know what's going on, but I have no clue. And so maybe you've been in a place like that where you feel a little bit embarrassed that everybody else seems to know stuff and it's like, I just don't know anything. Well, in John chapter 1, John has been introducing us to the person of Jesus. And he began with this big cosmic view, telling us that Jesus is the eternal word by whom all things were created, and then that he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus is God with us. And then we kept going through chapter 1, and we saw that Jesus, God in human flesh, lived most of his adult life and his, his life as a child and as an adult relatively unknown. Growing up in the town of Nazareth, and we pick it up at the end of John chapter 1 when Jesus traveled to Bethsaida, which was northeast of Nazareth. I've got a map right here. You know, a lot of you, just in case you didn't know, a lot of you in the back of your Bible, most Bibles will have a map of some sort. And as we go through John, we're going to hear about a lot of different places. For me, it's helpful to know kind of where we're at. Maybe you can see it. Okay, So Nazareth is a dot right there, kind of in the... Uh, northern part there. Uh, He went to Bethsaida at the end of chapter 1, a small fishing town, the hometown of Philip and Peter and Andrew, and he called disciples to himself there. And then last week, he was in Cana at the beginning of chapter 12, where he and his mother and the disciples had been invited to a wedding. And there he performed his first miracle. And after that, in verse 12, it says they went from there to the town of Capernaum. That's kind of back towards the Sea of Galilee there you see with the yellow dots. And as we pick up the story today, we are going to see Jesus go from Capernaum all the way down to Jerusalem. It's only about 70 miles from that dot up there to the dot down there. It says go up to Jerusalem, not because it's north on a map, but because in elevation they would be going up. Right? So we're going to see them do that, and it's because it's the time of the Passover. So they're not the only people. Jesus and his disciples are not the only people. There would have been many other Jewish people and even God-fearing Gentiles who would have been at this time of year all kind of coming down, making their way to or way up to Jerusalem from wherever they were at so that they could be there 
for the Passover. And so as I read the passage this morning, I want you to imagine this city who normally had a good number of people in it, but now the city is just swelling with people that have come from many different regions, and so speaking different languages, having some different traditions, but now all gathering for this week here in Jerusalem. And that's the setting for the passage at the end of John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, that we're going to read today. And here's one thing that's going to become clear. It's going to become quite clear that Jesus knows. There are things that, that other people just can't know or don't know, but Jesus has never been in a situation like I have where he's surrounded by people that seem to know something and he's clueless. That's not at all the situation that Jesus has ever been in. Most of the time, Jesus is in a situation where he knows a number of things that all of the people around him don't seem to know. And so in today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus knows three things at least. Jesus knows what the temple is for. Jesus knows that he came to die and to be raised. And Jesus knows the hearts of men. So we'll see those things, I think, here very clearly as we go John chapter 12, or chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And so if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's word together today. From John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I want to pray first. Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells in all of us who believe. And that your Holy Spirit also comes to convict of sin and to bring about regeneration. And so God, we pray that as we're gathered together today, as we hear your word read, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts. That through hearing it, it would transform us from the inside out. Do that now for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. God's word says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume him. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in and you can be seated. So Jesus knows what the temple is for. Now, as I read that, here's the connection of this passage with Palm Sunday. Um, 
The connection is, if you were reading through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would read of a time, the day after Palm Sunday, the day after Jesus' triumphal entry, that he would enter into the temple and he would see all of this taking place and he would overturn tables and do much of the same thing that we're reading about here in the Gospel of John. And that took place on the day after Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, the five days before his crucifixion. So at the end of his earthly ministry. We read about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in the Gospel of John, we read about what seems to be a totally separate time where early on in his ministry, years before that, Jesus is doing the same thing. John does not include the time later in Jesus' ministry when he does this, but he does include the time early in Jesus' ministry where he does this in the temple. Okay, So that's a, a bit of a connection maybe with Palm Sunday, but it also just happens to be the next passage that we're going through. Okay. So seems that Jesus did this two times, and this is the first of those two times. And the first thing we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus knows what the temple is for. Jesus knows what the temple is for. And so we read, we just read this, but you look at verses 13 and 14 and try to imagine this scene. Like I mentioned, the city is swelling with people, and the Passover of the Jews is at hand. And Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, And it says in verse 14, it begins this way. It says, in the temple. Now, there's a couple of different words for temple. We translate both of them temple in English. But this word here was used to refer to the greater area of the temple. Okay, There's a different word for the inner part of the temple where, where Jews could only go to worship. But this is referring to, this is the word for the broader area of the temple. So outside of the inner area of the temple, there would have been uh, what they call the temple court. So an outdoor area. And that's the area that Jesus is walking into here in verse 14. In the temple, in the temple courts, that area, he found people who were selling things. They were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were sitting there. Now, why would this have been the case? Why outside in the temple courts would all of these things been happening? It would have been happening because in the temple, sacrifices were to be made. And like I mentioned, people were coming from far away. And so rather than each of them taking their own animal with them on their whole journey up to Jerusalem, this was there for their convenience. For their convenience, they could, when they arrived, take the currency of their region and go to a money changer and have them exchange that for them, maybe ripping them off to some degree, but they'd make a money exchange so that they could then go to another vendor and purchase for themselves oxen, sheep, pigeons, whatever it was that they were going to sacrifice. And so the people that are there that are doing this, they're there for that purpose. But they were setting up shop, if you will, in the area known as the the temple court, outside of the temple, and this would have been the only area that God-fearing Gentiles could have entered. There were areas in the temple that only Jewish people could, and so if you were a Gentile, if you weren't Jewish, you could not enter certain places. If you wanted to come and to meet with God and to worship God, you would do that here in the outer courts of the temple. But on this day, there are people that have kind of turned that into a marketplace. 
And so that helps us to understand what comes next, and that is the response of Jesus. When Jesus sees this as taking place, he responds in a way that might seem a bit surprising to some people. Some people's picture of Jesus has a hard time, they might have a hard time justifying the Jesus they have in their head with the Jesus who does this. But look at what it says, verse 15. Jesus makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He takes the coins of the money changers and he pours them out. He takes their tables and he overturns them. So imagine the scene that's happening. People everywhere, probably some people in other parts don't even know this is happening, but the people right around, it's going to be obvious that this is taking place. And he tells those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So the question would be, why is Jesus responding in this way? They're there for the convenience of people who are coming to worship God and to make sacrifices. Why is Jesus so upset? We need to look at what Jesus says. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is an area that's to be set apart for a certain purpose. Jesus refers to it as his father's house. And what it's become is it's become a house of trade. So Jesus is not upset because he's anti-business. Jesus is not like an anti-capitalist who doesn't like this. That's not it. Jesus isn't even upset, uh, it doesn't seem, about the way in which they're going about doing it. He's upset that they're doing it here. I don't know that Jesus would have been upset if it was somewhere else, but you can tell from what Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. You're misusing this space. This space was designed and set apart to be a place of holy reverence where people could come and meet with God and make sacrifices. And especially this area, this this temple court area, this is the closest that the non-Jewish or Gentile people could get. And so when Jesus sees the people of God trying to make a buck, and by trying to make a buck, buck setting up shop in the only area where the God-fearing Gentiles could come and meet with God, Jesus is upset. Jesus is angry, and so he responds accordingly. Now later on, his disciples will remember that it was written from Psalm 69.9, Zeal for your house will consume me. And you could look at the rest of that psalm and see how all of that really in many ways points to Jesus. We don't know if the disciples remembered that on the spot or if they remembered it later. John is just telling us that at some point the disciples remembered that this was written. That's what they're seeing. Jesus has a zeal for the house of his father. He doesn't want it to be misused. And when, when people get in the way of other people, when God's people get in the way of other people coming to worship God, Jesus gets angry. And so application for us in this, as I try to think of application of this, here's the question that I thought of. We need to ask ourselves this. Am I hindering others from worshiping God? The application of this passage isn't, well, don't sell things in church because Jesus gets mad at that. Because this church building is not the new temple. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Right? But temple does not equal church building. Okay? So, so the application of this passage is not, we cannot sell things in church. 
It's not the application of this. That's not why Jesus was upset. Jesus is not upset about selling things. He's upset about misusing a space. And what was this space for? It was that people might come and worship God and meet with him here. And so we should ask ourselves, is there any way in which we, as God's people, are hindering others from worshiping God? One thing, I was just talking to the Free Church 101 class about this this morning, that I just love about this church is one thing that I find out is that when other pastors get together, a lot of times they complain about their church. I don't know if you knew that pastors do that. Um, but they don't, they don't want to do it with anybody in their church. So when pastors get together, sometimes they complain about their church. When I go to meetings and pastors are doing that, I don't have anything to complain about for the most part. Like I, like they talk about how they complain about how their people complain about stuff. Right? So, so we tried to do this, and so-and-so didn't want it to happen, and then so-and-so got mad that we changed this, and, and this color of the carpet, and the, and the wall, and then we're going to do this, and somebody got really upset about that, and, and when they get upset, then all these other people get up. Like, we just don't have that in this church. And I'm so thankful that, that our, like, personal preferences of, like, we should do it this way. No, we should do it this way. Like, we don't get all bent out of shape about that kind of stuff. That we generally, from what, maybe you complain to each other and I just don't know about it. Uh, but I don't hear a lot of complaints from people about little minor things that we recognize. We're a church on mission to know Christ and to make him known. And we're not going to get bent out of shape about little stuff that we could argue about. That we don't put our own personal preferences at, at such a high level of, of importance that we hinder other people from worshiping God. Well, who cares about that stuff? We just want more people to know Jesus. Right? And I love that about this church. But we still need to ask ourselves this question. Am I hindering others from worshiping God? Are there ways, think about this, are there ways in which, I know you wouldn't say it out loud, but are there ways in which we have this kind of attitude that is really pretty selfish at its core, that looks at things and says, I'm going to have things my way, and I'm okay if some other people get kind of left behind. That it's okay that, that other people might deserve maybe second best. That, that I'm not going to say it out loud, but I might believe that I'm a little more important than some other people. And so do we have attitudes that might cause us to look down on others, to look down on children, to look down on the elderly, to look down on immigrants, to look down on people on welfare, to look down on people with disabilities, whatever it might be, that there might be ways in which we kind of have a bit of an attitude of superiority that, that might come out in ways that we're unintentionally hindering others from coming to God. That was the attitude many Jewish people had in this day of Gentile people. Racism, basically, is what it is. They were a different race, and they looked at Gentiles as something less than they were. And because of that attitude, it, it, it gave them, it seems, no problem to set up shop in the one space where the Gentiles could come and worship. Right? It was as though, well, I'm here, and I need to sell to my people these animals so that they can make sacrifices. And so I'm going to do that here because I have a right to do that. It's our temple forgetting that in doing so, because of their attitude of superiority, probably to, to some degree, others were being hindered from worshiping God. And so that's something that I think we ought to wrestle with. And, and uh, you saw in the bulletin maybe an announcement of a class that we're going to be doing starting two weeks from today 
seven weeks, all the adults together, um, along with high school students, doing a class called For All People. And the goal of that class is to wrestle with some tough topics, to, to ask God to come and to search our hearts, that, that he might reveal maybe some attitudes that we might have, that we are, because of those attitudes, unintentionally communicating to other people that there's something less than because of whatever it might be. We're going to wrestle with some of that stuff. How do we grow in our love for widows and orphans and prisoners and the unborn and whatever else? And so we're going to cover a lot of those things in those weeks, and I'd encourage you to be there for that. And I think it's important because I think we need to take seriously, as Jesus seems to take seriously here, it's a serious thing when God's people find a way to get in the way of hindering other people to come and to worship God. Jesus gets angry when the people of God hinder others from worshiping God. I think I see that, and hopefully you see that as well pretty clearly here in verses 13 to 17. Jesus knows what the temple's for, and these people are misusing it, and he's mad. But Jesus knows another thing we see in verses 18 to 22. Jesus also knows that he came to die and to be raised. And so as you might expect, as Jesus comes in and really creates this scene here in the temple courts, overturning tables, dumping out stuff, driving animals out with a whip of cords, you might expect this question to come. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to come in here and to disrupt all of this? Who do you think you are? And imagine the look on their faces when Jesus says this. <laughs> Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus seems to have this great passion for the temple, but now he's telling them, destroy the temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Imagine the look of shock on their faces to hear this from this new rabbi. It says then in verse 20, the Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? The, the construction of this temple started in about the year 20 B.C., and it took a long time to get it all together. And they're standing in the temple courts looking. Are you, it took us 46 years. And you're saying destroy this temple and in three days you're going to raise it up? Logical question for them to ask, right? But then John gives us this. He says, but he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus has come to be the new meeting place with God. If you are going to meet with God, you no longer have to go through uh, a, a temple in Jerusalem. But instead, you come to Jesus, the one who has come to Jerusalem and eventually will come to Jerusalem again to die and to be raised. And that's where you meet with God. Right? We don't need a temple anymore to be the meeting place. So Jesus says, when I say destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up, I'm not talking about this building behind me. I've come to be the new temple, and you destroy this, which they will do a couple of years later as he's put to death on the cross. He's saying, three days I'll raise it up. Jesus knows that he came to die and to be raised. 
It says, then, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Okay, So a lot of things, you'll pick up on this as you read the Gospels, the disciples don't get it right away. But later on, a few years later down the road, they remember, oh, remember that thing that Jesus said about destroying the temple and raising it in three days? That wasn't even about the temple. That was about his body. Like they get that now after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then they believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus came to die and to be raised from the dead. And then we see Jesus knowing one more thing, verses 23 to 25. Jesus knows the hearts of men or the hearts of all people. Jesus says in verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember last week we saw that one of the purpose of Jesus doing signs was that people might believe in him. And so again, as Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, a lot of the people see the signs that he's doing and they believe in him. But we're going to find out as we go through the Gospel of John that some people who are attracted to first believe in Jesus through the signs that he does, when they find out that he's more than just a miracle-working rabbi and that he is the Savior who has come to die and to be raised from the dead, they're going to start to walk away. We're going to see that clearly in John chapter 6. So some may only believe because they've seen him do miracles, And so it says this in verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that we are fickle, that we're easily pulled in different directions, that we are prone to wander. Jesus, who is God, knows this about us. And so here at the beginning of his ministry, where all sorts of people are attracted to him, he's not going to fall prey to their flattery and be who they want him to be. Jesus has already made it clear in chapter 2 in a couple of different ways that he has come and he knows why he's come. And he's come to die and to be raised, and he's not going to let anybody else determine the timing for that. And so Jesus at this point is not entrusting himself to them because he knows what is in us. And so some final application for us. Jesus knows our sinful hearts, and he came to die and be raised so that we might believe and live. So I'd ask you, does that sound like good news to you? That Jesus knows our sinful hearts. Does it sound like like Jesus knows your heart? Jesus knows your thoughts. Jesus knows your attitudes. Jesus knows things that you have said and done and thought that nobody else knows about. Jesus knows. And to some, that sounds intimidating. That leads you to fear, and that might even cause some to to try and run away from Jesus, to try and get away. That the attitude that you might have is an attitude like that, that song about Santa Claus. Like, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Like, that's the message that you hear. 
don't think that's the message that we hear about Jesus in Scripture. Jesus knows. He knows of our sinful hearts, our sinful thoughts, our sinful attitudes. But He, knowing that, has come on purpose to live and to die and to be raised from the dead so that we who are sinful, He knows what we need more than we even know what we need. Jesus knew what we needed. And so He doesn't come with a message, so be good for goodness sake, because I know He comes with the message of, I know. I know your battle with sin. I know of your addiction. I know of of the way that you have used words. I know the thoughts that go through your head. I know that, and that is why I have come, and I have come to die and to be raised, that this temple might be destroyed and be raised up again in three days. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowning his blood-stained brow, that he came to take Our sin on himself. Scripture says he himself bore our sin in his body on that tree. As we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. That's what we come back here on Friday to remember and to think on and to sing about and to hear of. That Jesus knew why he came. He knows your sinful heart. He knows your attitudes. He knows your thoughts. Yet he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This is love. That Jesus knows, and He doesn't flee. And He does not send immediate judgment, but He gives an opportunity to repent and to put faith in Him. So I hope you come again on Friday as we remember this, and then come again on Sunday as we remember the victory over death that Jesus wins through His resurrection. But now we're going to close by singing a song together. And in that song, we're going to sing these words. I was lost in utter darkness. And that wasn't a surprise to Jesus. We don't sing that part. We can be thinking that, right? But I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free. We're going to sing about our hearts that are prone to wander. We recognize that. And Jesus knows that. He knows how prone we are to to say one thing and start to head in a different direction with our life. And He came to die that we who were lost in utter darkness might be rescued and given new life. We're going to sing about that, uh, about the King, Jesus, who as people sang on, 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 or cried out on Palm Sunday, Many of them had no idea what Jesus had come to do, how it was that Jesus the King was coming to set up his kingdom. They didn't expect what was coming on Friday. They were waving palm branches as Jesus came in on a donkey, expecting him to be a certain kind of king. But we know now that he was the king who came to die and to be raised. And he is our king. And he's coming again, and that's good news. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you sent your son and that he was clear about why it was that you sent him. That it wasn't to be what everybody else expected him to be. That he came knowing our sinful hearts and desiring that all kinds of people would come to worship him. That 
that, that even those that were Gentiles would not be barred from and would not be hindered in any way from coming to know and to worship Jesus. And so God, it's our desire too, that as Jesus came the first time to die and to be raised from the dead, it's our desire that he would come soon, that we would see the king come again. And God, in the meantime, help us to be diligently caring about those who have not yet come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. May nothing in our lives and may nothing in our attitudes even hinder others from coming to worship God. Help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.